Okay, I'm, I'm calling this message the amazing grace of God in Antioch. And it's Acts 11 verses 19 to 30. So starting in verse 19 all the way through the end of that chapter. Okay, let's go ahead and read the text together. Acts 11:19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of faith, I'm sorry, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a considerable, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And now, Lord, we pray that you'd make this ancient writing from your Holy Spirit through Luke. We pray that it would live and come alive to us and motivate us to live in like manner. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we were looking at the ministry of the Apostle Peter. I'm sorry. Well, yes, actually we were. We're looking at the ministry of Peter when the Lord called him to go to Cornelius and his household and to preach the gospel. And there these Gentiles were saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, giving forth a manifestation of speaking with other tongues as evidence that they'd received the Spirit. They were incorporated into the body of Christ. So, in Acts chapter 11, the Jews at Jerusalem took issue with Peter because he had gone into a Gentile's household and spoken to them. And they wanted to kind of make him give an accounting of what he had done. This was unheard of. So Peter does that, and the last verse of that section is in verse 18. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then... God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So when Cornelius and his household were saved, their conclusion was, well then, God has granted to these Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So the first Gentiles were brought into the church of Christ. But in verse 19 and following, we're going to see the floodgates of God's grace open up and then 
multitudes are going to come flooding into the church. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. And when we come to see the church at Antioch, we're going to see the first integrated church of Jew and Gentile that has ever existed on the planet. Where you have a, a good number of Jews, good number of Gentiles, and they have been saved and they're incorporated into the singular local church. Which is a historic event. Never happened before. So when we come to Acts 11:19, no longer are we focusing on Jerusalem and Judea. Now we're up in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And from Antioch, the gospel is going to be launched out through missionary activity to go to all over the world. The Apostle Paul and his co-workers like Barnabas, um, John Mark, men like that, they're going to have as their sending base this church in Antioch. So it really is a historic church. Let me give you some, some background on this particular city, the city of Antioch. It was situated 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was the third largest city of that day. The first largest was Rome, then Alexandria, which was down in Egypt, and there is Antioch. Uh, along the, uh, it's a little bit north of Palestine. It's out, outside of the Jewish area, but still within that same general region. And in that particular day, there were no less than 16 different Antiochs, but this was by far the most influential and the most famous of all. Uh, it got its name because in around 300 BC, one of Alexander the Great's generals had a father named Antiochus, and this general actually had the city built. Later on, after uh, Alexander the Great had died, he had this, the city built, and so he named it after his father, Antiochus, he called it Antioch. It became known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its beautiful buildings. By this time there was this long paved road of marble, four miles long, and it was flanked on either side by these double colonnades with trees and fountains, and it was the only city of its day in that era that, that was lit up with lights at night. So it was, it was a very famous cosmopolitan type city. Uh, it was home to a large colony of Jews, but in addition to this colony of Jews, there were Orientals from Persia, from India, and from China. And so the nickname had been given to Antioch. They called it the Queen of the East. So you had Romans there, you had Greeks, you had Orientals, and you had Jews, sort of kind of like America, a melting pot of all these different nations coming together. And it was also there in Antioch that you had the center of the worship of the goddess Daphne. Five miles outside of the city limits, there was a temple built to this goddess called Daphne. And they had some kind of a, a tradition that the, the god Apollo was seeking to seduce Daphne. And so the temple priestesses, which are really temple prostitutes, would be engaged in soliciting men and I guess reenacting this whole thing between the two gods and goddesses, Apollo and Daphne. So, on top of everything else, it was a very immoral place, just like Corinth was and many of the other ancient cities. Very loose living, a lot of sexual immorality going on within that place. But it was to this particular city that God brought his amazing grace and a powerful awakening in the first century. And we're going to look at three aspects of this grace of God that was poured out upon this city in Antioch. We're going to look at the founding of the church first and then the growth of the church, and then the fruit that came forth from this church. So first of all, let's 
take a look at the founding of the church. Let's notice how it actually got started. Well, verse 19 says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. And you guys recall back in chapter 8 what was going on? Where the persecution that Saul brought upon the church? There in, in Acts 8.4, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And then we have a giant parenthesis from 8.5 to 11.18, telling us other things that were going on. But this picks up, 11.19 picks up right after Acts 8.4. So this is in connection with that persecution that was driving all of the Christians out of Jerusalem and they were scattered all over the place because Saul was trying to destroy him. And some of them made their way up north, 300 miles north, and they came to this famous influential city called Antioch. Now, who did God use to plant the church there? Well, we're told these Christians that were scattered because of the persecution, they're the ones that made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And at first, they were just speaking the word to Jews only. Just the Jews. That was what, how they were raised to think. Jews didn't have any dealings with Gentiles. They stayed, they stayed apart. They stayed separate. But notice verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Okay, so Cyprus is the island right off of Phoenicia to the, in the Mediterranean Sea. Cyrene would be on the African coast. So that's quite a distance away, but you have some people coming up from Cyrene. And you wonder, how did Christians, how do you find any Christians down in Cyrene? Well, remember, we had the Ethiopian eunuch. He was from uh, Africa. I just wonder if maybe he's already spread the word and some people have come to faith down there and now they're traveling northward. Some of them are mixing with these other believers and it tells us they came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks also. So this was unheard of up until now. Jews just didn't talk to Greeks but they're speaking to Greeks also and they're they're speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus, announcing the good news to these people about Jesus Christ. What I find so interesting here is not a single person who founds this influential, dynamic missionary church is even mentioned, mentioned by name. Barnabas comes later. Saul comes later. Agabus comes later. The founding of the church was by a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of unsung heroes. And don't you know God's got I don't know how many, probably millions of unsung heroes around the world. Nobody knows their name. The world doesn't know their name. Even the church probably doesn't even know their name. They're, they're just regular, ordinary Christians who are going about doing the will of God quietly, unobserved. But yet God is using them to found the kingdom of God upon the earth. And we owe a great debt to these unsung heroes that God... We owe a great debt to these because it was from them that... that Paul was sent out and he went everywhere preaching the gospel. So praise God that don't despise the day of small beginnings. 
God, you say, well, I'm just an ordinary Christian. I'm nobody special. I'm not famous. That's the kind of person God delights to use. You know why? He gets the glory <laughs> because he's using people like us. So take heart. God, can you, God wants to use you. It's not that he can. He wants to use you. And we saw stories already this morning of people ministering to neighbors. That's the exact kind of thing that the Lord wants us to be doing. And he wants to extend his kingdom throughout the world through simple people. Okay, it reminds me of um, the stories that came out of the Jesus movement back in the late 60s, early 70s, when these Christians were so on fire for the Lord that they would hitchhike, not because they needed a ride, but because they wanted to witness to the guy giving them a ride to the next place. You know, I, hitchhiking isn't even a thing anymore. I never even see people hitchhiking. But when I was a teenager, hitchhiking was all over the place. And that's how they would witness or they'd go down to the beach and just talk to all the people down on the beach about Jesus. So, ordinary people speaking the word. Now, what was their message? Verse 20 says, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Don't let the word preaching take you off guard or, or fool you, because two times previous it says speaking, right? Verse 19 they were speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Verse 20, speaking to the Greeks also. The word preaching here simply means to announce good news. The way they were doing it, I believe, was through just ordinary witnessing. We would call it witnessing today. Just talking to your neighbor, talking to the person you work with, talking to the person you go to school with, talking to your relatives, your friends. It was ordinary speech. But in that speech, they were announcing to them I've got some good news to share with you. God has sent his Messiah who is going to reconcile people back to himself. You can have a real relationship with the God who made you through Jesus Christ who died for sin and rose again. And simple speech like this. I don't think we're seeing here famous evangelists and pastors standing up and preaching to multitudes. I think this is ordinary speech where they're announcing good news to people. And you may not have to gift of preaching, but you don't need it. Can you talk? If you can talk, you can do what they're doing here. We have the privilege and the responsibility also of being engaged in this work of God that's going on in the world. And their message, the Lord Jesus. <laughs> that was their message. Preaching the Lord Jesus. They weren't announcing their morality, or they weren't preaching their church, or they weren't preaching some social issue they were preaching the Lord Jesus they weren't even as their primary focus they weren't even uh, preaching about the sins of the day even though maybe they had to hit on that their primary focus was the person and the work of Jesus Christ Jesus is the gospel <laughs> he is the good news that God has given us to announce to the world and if you know him you have a role to play do you okay let me just ask you guys we don't want to be embarrassed today, but do we, do we ever speak of Christ to anybody? Good. All right. Scott's over here saying yes. Good for you, brother. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But, you know, this, this was the message of the early church. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he winds up his message and he says in Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, 
This Jesus whom you crucified. So the climax of his preaching was Jesus Christ. It's also the message of, the, of uh, Philip, the evangelist. He goes down to Samaria, and in Acts 8, 5, it says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and be began proclaiming Christ to them. That's what he preached. We also find when he's speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. Let me find that verse. It's 835. Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. It's like they have a one-track mind. Everybody knows this is the message. Jesus is the entire message. We also find in chapter 9, after Saul is converted, verse 20, it says, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. So everybody, that's all they do. They proclaim Jesus. It, it's, it's not enough for us to say, hey, we have a great church. Would you like to come and visit? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of off the point. <laughs> the point is not the church, and it's not that I'm such a, a moral, squeaky clean person. You should be like me. Or it's not that, look at those terrible sins going on in the world. You don't want to be like that. No, the issue is you need to fall in love with this person, Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be the Savior of sinners. You need to know him because he's the answer to the issues that you've got in life. So that's their message. These are not the polished, eloquent sermons of apostles and prophets. This is one guy leaning over the fence talking to his neighbor, you know, or... This is, this is something that you can do. This is, this is not over your heads, folks. I want you to catch a vision that the Lord can use you in this way. And to start praying and expecting that God will open up opportunities for each one of us. Okay, so what was the result when they were preaching, announcing the good news about Jesus? Let's go back to Acts 11, verse 21 says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, three times in this short little section, Luke is going to, Luke is going to talk to us about the numbers of people. Let me just show those to you. The first one is in verse 21. It says, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The next one is in verse 24. It says, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And then the next one is in verse 26. The church taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians. So Luke is emphasizing that there is a real move of God. That there is a stirring. That there are large numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In this Gentile city up north, which probably surprised everybody. Gentiles can be saved and lots of them will be saved. You know, but that's what was happening. What was the explanation for why these large numbers of people are turning to the Lord? Did you see it in verse 21? It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the only explanation given. It wasn't that their preaching was so mesmerizing, or so eloquent, or so dynamic, or that they were so charismatic, or the people's hearts were so soft and pliable, and they were so ready just to receive. No, none of that is mentioned at all. The only reason given for all these people coming to Christ is the hand of the Lord was with them. 
And if God moves again, which I hope he does, it will be because his hand, the hand of the Lord, is upon them. It'll be a moving of the Spirit of God. That's when true revival ever happens. God is moving. God is giving a sense of himself to the people in that place. We find that all the way through the book of Acts. That when someone comes to Christ, it's because the hand of the Lord did that thing. Remember Acts 2.47? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added them. Or Acts 5.31. There it says, He, that's Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So God did that. God granted repentance. He gave forgiveness of sins. We also find the same thing in 1118, which we've already read today. Not just to Israel, but this time it's to the Gentiles. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Not just the sons of Israel, also to the Gentiles. He grants repentance. We find it in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the Lord had appointed these people to eternal life, and they came to faith. And we also find it in the case of Lydia. When she's listening to Paul preach down at the riverside in Philippi, it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. So Luke is very careful to clue us in that whenever, whenever someone's coming to Christ, they're not doing it on their own. It's not just that they make a decision of their will. Something is going on behind the scenes invisibly. The Spirit is working to bring these people to Christ. I think that's... The, we, we mentioned earlier the movie, The Jesus Revolution. So, I think that's the only explanation we could possibly give for what God did back in the late 60s, early 70s, where there was this resurgence of people coming to Christ. Uh, there are still pastors and churches all over the country today that were saved during that time. They're like 70 years old now. But, but multitudes came to Christ, and, and many of those people ended up becoming pastors and teachers all over the country. The hand of the Lord was with us during that time. What's the explanation for hundreds of thousands of people being converted in China over the last few decades? The hand of the Lord is moving in China. And it's, he's still moving in China with the house church movement all over that nation. So the church was started in Antioch because a bunch of nobodies dared to witness about Jesus Christ. The hand of the Lord was with them. And it'll be the same today if we are bold enough and have the courage to open our mouths and talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what he can do for them. It, it, just, it just requires a willingness to submit ourselves to the Lord and allow him to use us. I think we overestimate the power of a big famous evangelist like Billy Graham and we underestimate what God can do through an army of ordinary believers mobilized speaking forth the glorious things of Christ. Folks, it's not enough for us just to live a godly life. Have you heard that saying of St. Francis of Assisi? Mm -hmm. You know, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. 
People and love we like, they love it love because it means, oh, I don't have to use words. I don't have to say anything. I can just preach the gospel with my life. Now, we should preach the gospel with our life, but it's not enough just to live a godly life. Because when people look at you, they, well, they may or may not, but even if they do say, wow, that person's really cool. I wonder what makes them different. That in and of itself will never get anybody saved. It's kind of like saying, feed the hungry at all times. If necessary, use food. Well, it is necessary to use food. And it is necessary to use words. You've got to get words out of your mouth if you're going to preach the gospel to anybody. It's going to require speaking. So I would encourage you guys, if you've never considered this before, a great way to do this is to start a discovery Bible study and invite people that don't know Christ to it. Anybody who's interested, has any spiritual interest in the things of God, would like to learn more about what God has said, invite them to a discovery study where all you do is open the Bible, read it, and start asking questions. And let them discover, as they read it for themselves, what God says in His Word. I, I love that method. I, and if you've never considered it, you might start praying for an opportunity to invite some people, maybe family members even. Our friends um, Stanley and Janelle in Trinidad, Janelle is doing this with her family members. She's got some cousins and some aunts and things like that, and she's getting them together, and they're just going to go through the Word, and it's her hope that they'll come to Christ as a result of this study. So beautiful. So we've seen the, the founding of the church. Let's look at the growth of the church. We're back in Acts 11. Verse 22. So the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. This was big news. That a Gentile church was thriving 300 miles north of the, the hub, Jerusalem. And they're, they're thinking, what's going on up there? This is amazing. So it, the news reached them, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. They needed somebody from there locale there in Jerusalem to go up there and check it out and let them know, is this really a legitimate work of God or is something crazy going on? So Barnabas, and we've been introduced to Barnabas already in chapter 4, he's from Cyprus, interestingly, which is where these people who are witnessing are also from. We find that in verse 20. So Barnabas is not an outsider coming in. He's, he's from the same place that these other people are. So he's one of them which is a good choice to make. We also find out that he's called the son of encouragement, and that's what he ends up doing here. He ends up encouraging these new Christians. So they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he saw it for himself. He rejoiced because he believed this is a real work of God. The Lord was working. It's not counterfeit. This is the real thing. And he began to encourage them. He's a son of encouragement. He began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now, we think the word encourage, we normally take that to mean uh, tell somebody what great job they're doing, right? That's to encourage them. Tell them what a great job they're doing. In the Bible, the word encourage means urge them to do the right thing. Encouragement in Scripture is the same thing to, as exhorting. In fact, you find the, the same Greek word, parakaleo, it means exhort, it means encourage. Same word. So, he's a son of encouragement, not, in, not meaning that he came up to tell them what great things they were doing. He came up them to urge them to a course of action. And what was the course of action? 
with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. In other words, remain true. Don't go back. You're going to face trials. You're going to face hardships. You're going to face sufferings. But remain true to the Lord with a resolute heart. So he's encouraging them in this fashion. And then in verse 24, it gives us his, uh, his character. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I love that description of him. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. Do you remember hearing something like this earlier in the book of Acts? Chapter 6, when they're trying to, to set apart some men to uh, take care of the Greek widows? Same, same basic qualifications. They had to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, a reputation for goodness. And as a result of his ministry among them, it says considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So initially, when the people are witnessing to them, considerable numbers are brought to the Lord. Then when Barnabas comes down and he begins to exhort them, considerable numbers are also brought to the Lord. We've got two considerable numbers. And that's not going to be the end of it either. We're going to find this happens again. So what I notice here is that God is using some gifted men to mature his church. There was a church already before Barnabas came. There was an assembly of believers there in Antioch. But they needed some gifted men to bring maturity to those young Christians that had just come to Christ. And so God uses Barnabas. Now what gift did God give Barnabas? Yeah. Encouragement, or you would call that the gift of exhortation from Romans 12. He had the gift of exhortation. Not only is he going to use Barnabas, he's also going to use a guy named Saul. And Saul and Barnabas together are going to teach these believers. So not only could they exhort, they could teach the word, which is what these new Christians really needed to get grounded in the faith so that they could grow up in Christ. They needed some good, solid teaching. Isolating yourself from other Christians is not a model for your spiritual growth. Do you see that? God knew that they needed certain gifts in order to be strong in their faith. And so he, God sent some people, brought some people together to do that work. We need each other in the body. We, we can't live isolated lives and expect to flourish spiritually. The church is designed to help us grow together in Christ. And so I would just encourage you, I would exhort you today to commit yourself to a local church. It, it's within the context of a local church that you are going to grasp truth, grow spiritually, and learn how to serve your brothers and sisters. So here we have Barnabas, the gift of exhortation. I also find it interesting that the church in Jerusalem didn't send one of those Judaizers down, or, yeah, down to Antioch. Do you remember who they were? These are Jews who believed that someone had to get circumcised if they were a Gentile, and they had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And there was a bunch of people like that in the first century. That would have killed the movement, because here you've got all these Gentiles coming to faith and now you can have someone coming in and imposing on them okay all you guys you have to get circumcised then you have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy and start keeping all these laws and Leviticus 
that would have just killed, squelched the work of the Spirit. So they had the wisdom to know, hey, let's send Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas was from Cyprus, which is not a Palestinian city. It's not a Jewish city. It's, it's from the Greek area of the world. So they, they chose a Greek, a person with a Greek background to go to these Greeks. A lot of wisdom there. I also find that a character quality in Barnabas that is really cool. I, it's, it's the quality of humility. And I say that because what does Barnabas do? He comes down, he sees this wonderful work that God is doing in the city of Antioch. Now he could have remained the only leader of that church. He didn't have to get any help. He could have been the senior pastor of Antioch. <laughs> he could have been the head honcho, you know, the big cheese. The buck stops with me. You know, I make all the decisions in this church. But instead of doing that, what does he do? He takes off and goes find Saul and says, Saul, we need your help here. Let's be co-leaders in this church. Let's minister together with this, this group of people. That takes humility, right? Because, of course, your pride would like everybody to look to you as the end-all, be-all of your, their Christian faith, but that's not the will of God. The will of God is for, uh, for us to humble ourselves, use our gifts, but allow others to use their gifts as well because the church needs them all, Amen. not just our own. So how did Barnabas ministered? He confirmed that a genuine work of God was taking place, and then he exhorted these young believers to remain true to the Lord with a resolute heart. And what's the result of his exhorting ministry? We just saw that considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Apparently in their zeal and passion of uh, their, their, their newfound faith and Barnabas encouraging them in that faith, it's spreading to other people, and other people are now are coming to Christ as well. Okay, so we've got the gifted man Barnabas, and now we're going to see the gifted man Saul, who had a great gift of teaching to add to the mix here. Verse 25, and he left for Sars Tarsus to look for Saul. Do you remember these guys knew each other? If you read back in chapter 9, it was Barnabas that brought Saul to the apostles because they were all afraid of him. And he says, no, no, he's really, he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. He's a changed man. You can trust him now. And eventually they did. But it was Barnabas who did that whole thing. So why would Barnabas seek out Saul to help in the ministry? Well, I think for starters, there's too many people for Barnabas to do it all by himself. Twice we've been told considerable numbers are being brought to the Lord. This is too much for one guy to be able to do all the work. He needs some help. Secondly, Saul was just the man that the church needed because both he and Barnabas were diaspora Jews, meaning that they lived outside of Palestine, outside of the Judea and Jerusalem. So Tarsus is way up north. Cyprus is the island off of the Mediterranean. They come from these Greek areas. And so they seem to be perfect for this job because here we have all these Greeks. They're in Antioch. Also, Saul was fluent in the Greek language and culture. And you have all these Greeks, so he can relate to them. He can speak their language fluently. He understands them. Uh, in addition to that, Saul was sp specifically called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 9.15. When God called Saul, that was his commission. You're to go to kings, the sons of Israel, and to the Gentiles, God said. And he had a rare 
gift of teaching which this church of brand new believers really needed in order to get strong and founded in their faith. Now Saul had been walking with Jesus for about seven years, as close as we can surmise from the evidence that we have. So he's not a brand new Christian anymore. He's been walking with Jesus for about seven years. His heart's bursting with this revelation that God has given to him about Christ, and he's just wanting to share. So he's the perfect guy for the job. And I think the Lord is going to use this time in Barnabas and Saul's lives to prepare them for their mission that's going to come up in chapter 13. So as they learn to teach and share ministry here in Antioch, it's like the Lord is getting them ready for something in the future, right? Because they're going to be missionaries together on the mission field. Now they're learning to share ministry. They're learning to submit to each other. They're learning to balance each other. And that's, that's, it's great stuff that needs to happen in order to get them ready for the next stage of God's work for them. So what did Saul do when he got to Antioch? It says that he and Barnabas together taught the church for a whole year. And we think, okay, every Sunday morning these guys would teach. I don't think it was that way. They're probably having teaching sessions going on six or seven days a week. You know, a pocket of believers here, another pocket over there. Maybe Barnabas takes that group. Saul takes this group. Maybe they co-teach. You know, that'd be kind of interesting. So one guy starts and then the other guy finishes and he goes over. You know, I, don't, I really don't know, but they were teaching all these believers for a, a solid year, laboring in the word and doctrine. And notice they were teaching these people that came to Antioch, it says they were preaching. They were announcing the good news about Jesus. But the emphasis switches from preaching now to teaching. Preaching in the scripture primarily has to do with the lost. I remember doing a, getting my concordance out and looking up every verse I'm preaching in the New Testament. And there are a few places where believers are preached to, like Romans 1.16. But the overwhelming majority of times when the New Testament talks about preaching, it's to the lost, and it's the message of the gospel, of reconciliation through Christ. But now that a person has heard that message, and they've embraced it, if all you do is continue to preach that same message over and over, their growth can be stunted. What they need is some good teaching of the whole counsel of God, not just this one area, but everything God has said. So line upon line, precept upon precept, that young believer can start growing in his understanding and become um, more broad in his understanding and his ability to share the truth with others. If a church... If, if all they ever have is just the, the simple preaching of the simple gospel message and they preach that over and over and they never go through the word of God with their people, their people can't grow unless they do it on their own. So I believe the church needs to, to teach the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we have tried to do from day one here. We've tried to do that. So teaching lays the foundation and then exhortation builds on that foundation. First we understand the word, and then someone urges us to put it into practice. In Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul talks about the gift of teaching, and he also talks about the gift of exhortation. In 1 Timothy 4, 13, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, 
and to teaching. So do you hear that? Read the scripture, teach the scripture, and exhort from the scripture. That's kind of how he sums up uh, Timothy's ministry there. Read it, teach it, and exhort from it. Even when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he told people that were making disciples, teach them to observe or obey everything I have commanded you. So the, the teaching ministry there was a practical one. It was putting into practice the things that Jesus had taught during his lifetime and his ministry. And what was the result of Paul's teaching ministry with Barnabas? Look at verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice the disciples weren't calling themselves Christians. They were called by other people Christians. And it was probably a slanderous word originally. But these guys, hey, I kind of like that name. I don't mind being called a Christian. <laughs> so if you put I-A-N on the end of a word, what are you saying? Like Herodian? I belong to the party of Herod? If I'm a Christian, I belong to the party of Christ, right? I am a follower of Jesus. And they said, that's who we are. We're Jesus people. Back in the Jesus movement, that's what they called them, Jesus people. And they, they didn't call themselves that. The media started calling them that. And they said, hey, we kind of like that term. We'll take it. We like to be called Jesus people. <laughs> so Saul and Barnabas were teaching them everything they could, everything they knew about Christ. And these new believers are, are grasping the truth. And they're excited about the things they're learning. And they are reaching out to other people. And they're coming into the church. So it was an exciting time. A very exciting time. Now, let's think this through. They were called Christians. They were called Christians. What were the followers of Jesus called in the New Testament? So there's many different things they were called, right? They were called brethren. That occurs 290 times in the New Testament. So brother or sister or brethren. They were called disciples 269 times in the New Testament. They were called saints 61 times in the New Testament. They were called Christians three times. Here, Acts 26, 28, and 1 Peter 4, 16. So three times they're called Christians. And then sinners. There is one believer who was called a sinner, and he actually called himself that. It was the Apostle Paul. All but, well, the, the word sinners occurs 43 times in the New Testament. All of those times except for one, are, we're talking about lost people. The only time it's talking about a saved person is when Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. He called himself that. But to me, it seems a little ironic that we tend to focus on the terms that the Bible doesn't really focus on very much. We, term, we focus on calling ourselves sinners and Christians. Where the least amount of times the Bible uses those words, and we don't talk about so much that we're disciples or saints or brethren. I guess we do a little bit when it comes to brethren because we call Debbie Sister Debbie and Sister Paula and all of that, Sister Ez and Brother Jerome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's the preponderance of the New Testament's weight comes down on the words brethren, disciples, and saints. Now let's third look at the fruit that came forth from this church. We've seen the gift of uh, 
exhortation or encouragement in Barnabas. We see the gift of teaching in Saul. We're going to see the gift of prophecy in a man by the name of Agabus. Verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. First of all, I want you to notice that there, were, there was more than one prophet that came down from Jerusalem. There was a group of prophets. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but everywhere in the New Testament you have teams of people doing everything. When Paul goes out and does missionary work, he never goes by himself. There's always a Timothy, a Titus, a Barnabas. There's always a team of people that are going and doing it. When you have elders of a church, there's never one pastor. You've always got a team leading that church. Even deacons are plural in the Bible. Uh, and here are the prophets. The prophets didn't go off like one guy go off and prophesy. He brought his, his buddies with him and together they ministered to the church. Agabus just seemed to be the one God used in this particular time to bring forth the prophecy. But what, what you see in the New Testament is plurality. It's, it's a team of people working together. And I think that that's a very healthy model. We're used to the senior pastor model where one guy is at the very top of the, the, the food chain or the spiritual chain. <laughs> and th this is the guy, the buck stops with me. I make the decisions. And I don't think that's a healthy model for church life because, well, you, I think you know why. We're, we have a fallen nature. We can be corrupted by pride. It's happened all too often. It's, it's much healthier to have a team of people, and, and if somebody starts going off, the rest of them can uh, confront them and rebuke them and say, you need to come back to repentance. Maybe a lot of the scandals that have happened throughout church history could have been avoided if you had had some strong leaders that worked together rather than one guy by himself. So Barnabas isn't trying to minister alone, Saul's not ministering alone, and Agabus wasn't ministering alone. There is mutual accountability, mutual submission. Now, he ministers with the gift of prophecy. He foretold by the spirit of a great famine, and this famine actually did take place during the reign of Claudius Caesar between 41 and 54 AD. Josephus records that there was a very severe famine in Judea during Claudius's reign in which a lot of people were dying of starvation because they didn't have the money to buy what precious little food was still available and they just couldn't obtain food and people were dying during that time. So the Holy Spirit raises up these prophets to prepare the church that they would have enough to get through this very difficult time and the way they do that is by the generous giving of this group up in Antioch to give to the saints down in Jerusalem. So the Gentiles are giving to the Jews to help them during this famine that was going to come. Now, notice the prophecy that he gave. The prophecy Agabus gave. It had nothing to do with giving new revelation concerning doctrine or theology. You also don't find anybody writing down Agabus's prophecies in a book and adding it to the Bible. We'll call this the book of Agabus. You know, he did prophesy and God used his prophecies. In fact, this isn't the only one. We're going to find him prophesying to Paul later on in the book of Acts. So he, God used him in the gift. But personally, I don't think it's what we see here in his ministry is the same as we see from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel who wrote, who, 
who spoke with scripture level authority, their words are written down and added to the canon of scripture as inerrant doctrine for all time. I think when you come to the New Testament, you see a little, little bit different when it comes to this congregational gift of prophecy. Remember Paul says that you should all prophesy one by one and that you should pray that you would prophesy. He says in or 1 Corinthians 14. So it seems to be something that could happen within the church, not just one person here or there, but um, something that was available to God's people on a, on a large scale. And, and the gift is not something that comes with scripture level revelation because in 1 Corinthians 14, we're told that the church needs to judge the prophecies that are given. Now, if this is scripture level authority, you don't judge it. I don't go to the book of Isaiah and judge whether that came from God. But these prophecies were to be judged. So I see a difference between what we find in the New Testament and what and the, the scripture prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. Now people debate this one. A lot of people think that any prophecy given in the New Testament needs to come with absolute divine inerrant authority or it's not from God. But I just don't see that myself. Okay. So what's the result of Agabus's ministry when he prophesies about this famine? The church took note of it and they acted on it. They took up an offering. It says in verse 29, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. So first of all, how much did they give? In the proportion that any of them had means, they gave. So we're not told that they gave 10%, or nine, or eleven. No percentage is given. It just says, in the proportion that any had means, they made a contribution. Those who are very wealthy would be giving more than those who are struggling just to survive day by day. But how many of these people in the church gave? It says each of them. Each of them determined to send a contribution. I don't think any of us here in America are so poor that there's nothing that we could give. Now you might be poor and you can't give very much, but you could give something. I remember one brother used to come week after week and drop a few dimes in the box over there. That's all he had. And I, I was thrilled that he had a heart to want to give something. So I think the principle here is we can all give something and we ought to be giving something, right? If we're stewards, a steward is a manager of what God owns. Well, he owns all of our wealth and all of our possessions. Are we using those, not 10% of them, but he owns 100% of them. And we are responsible to do what he wants us to do with all of that we have. All of our money, all of our possessions. So each of them gave. Why did they give? Because they wanted to help their brothers, their Jewish brothers, living in Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that you have Gentiles... Gentiles wanting to help Jews, and Jews hated Gentiles. <laughs> they had no dealings with each other. Do you see the supernatural love that God has done in, in this church in Antioch to give them a heart to want to help Jews 300 miles away that they've never met? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a supernatural thing taking place. I love it. How did they send their gift? It says in verse 30, they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So by now they knew that Barnabas and Saul were 
uh, men of integrity. They could trust them. So they gave their contribution to these men. And not just to one man, right? It was two people. And these two people went and delivered it and handed it over to the elders in Jerusalem who would handle the affairs of distributing those funds when it became necessary, when the famine hit the hardest. So let's, let's wind up our time together. Um, what I see going on here is God working mightily through his people and using them according to their gifts, whether that gift is um, exhortation or teaching or prophecy, or whether it's just people witnessing for the Lord, ordinary Christians witnessing for the Lord. God is using all of them in different ways according to how he has gifted them. We started off with 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, put it to work in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So I think what we ought to be thinking about today is, all right, what is my gift? What's the special gift God has given to me? Because I'm supposed to put that to work. Just like Barnabas did exhortation, Saul did teaching, Agabus did prophecy. Well, I shouldn't spend all of my time and energy over in this area where I don't even have a gift. I'm not going to be effective. God's not going to receive very much glory. I should really drill down and use the particular gift God has given me because that's going to bring him the most glory. I'll just share a little example from my own life. Maybe it'll be helpful. Recently, I decided to step down from the day-to-day -day in my window cleaning company and I thought, okay, Lord, what's next? What do you want me to do? Because I'm going to have some more time that I didn't have before. And so I didn't know at first. I was, it was a big question mark in my head. You know, what do I do? I started to pray about it. And then this idea of using my teaching gift to bless other people on the internet came up. And I thought, I, I could probably do that. And so that, that's led me to start a YouTube channel. And I'm, I'm trying to help people online, uh, equip them to be teachers of the word themselves and to learn to study the Bible for themselves. That's really what I want to happen. So think about yourself in that regard. What has the Lord given you? And it could be more than one, maybe two, maybe three things. Maybe couple those things together. And what would that look like if you really put those things to work in your life? And we can talk about this more. We can have a, a round table, an open Q&A, and we can talk about this more. But, but think about that today. Because we only have one life to live. As the old saying goes, one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So let's... let's Let's make sure we're not wasting decades of our life doing trivial things that don't really matter or we're not effective in. Let's, let's really work in the areas that God wants us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. So rich. There's so much in here, Lord. Thank you for giving us your word, your instruction. And we pray that we would walk away from it really focused on what you'd have us to do with our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.